Today we're beginning our summer series called Best Supporting Actor. And if it looks familiar, for those of you that were here last spring, it ought to be because this is the New Testament edition of uh, the Old Testament version that we did last spring. Uh, character studies like this in the Bible make for great summer series because uh, you can be gone and come back in and just pick up with whatever character we're looking at. Although I do hope you take advantage of the online uh, live streaming that we have available. How many of you will promise right now that on vacation you'll live stream the journey? Thank you, both of you. That's great. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, we have a... It's, podcast on iTunes and you can listen to it in audio or watch it on video uh, via our website as well. So you can stay in touch. But this is going to be a great series. I love character studies. The thing I want to kind of set the tone for what you can expect as we look into this story, we, we want to capture as best as we can each story that we're going to look at this summer. But in trying to apply it to our lives, it's very important that you understand that a story is not where we go to to primarily understand doctrine or theology. So we're never going to stand up here and tell you that ex what exactly happened to the character we're studying is somehow some promise that God will do that thing for you. Or that what God said to that person uh, is exactly His word for you. That's not the point of the stories and the character studies of the Bible, they're anecdotal. We see in these characters and the story of God working in them, we see examples of what Scripture teaches broadly of how God works in our lives. So we see it as example, as illustrative, and we're able to draw out of it applications and principles uh, that we know the Bible teaches. So that's how we're going to use it. So each character study is sort of an extended illustration of biblical truth of how God works in all of our lives. And in the end, there are no supporting actors in God's plan. Even though in the biblical narrative, they take a very small part of the story. And today is just like that as we look at the very first woman, I believe, whose name is mentioned in the New Testament narrative. She only has a part in one chapter in the Bible. It's the first chapter of the book of Luke. She was the mother of a character, John the Baptist, an important person in God's plan of redemption. And we're going to study her story today. So because of that, she qualifies as a, as a supporting actor because most often when we read Luke chapter 1, which is about the the birth of John the Baptist, the forerunner, and the, the, the pronouncement uh, to Mary about the birth of the Messiah, Elizabeth's role can be put on the back burner because we're looking at it through the narrative of Christ's uh, coming, Christ's incarnation. And so today we're going to pull away some of those more meatier things that we would historically look at and peel back and look at Elizabeth in this, and there's some real blessings to it. It's page 723 in the Pew Bible, and I'd like you all to have the chapter open in some way in front of you, because we're literally going to work through the story. Read a portion of it, I'll make some comments, give you some historical background, interact with it, uh, and then we'll read another part of the story, and then at the end we'll t do some takeaways, some principles for us today. So it's page 723, Luke chapter 1. 
We're going to begin reading at verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and now they were both very old. And so this is the character setup of this story. And we find Elizabeth and Zechariah, who are both descendants of the priestly tribe of Aaron, and uh, are very faithful in that. We see some very important descriptions about them. And when we look at these things, because if you've been around the stories of the Gospels, you know what's going to happen here, right? You know that the childless is going to bear child. That's, that's the miracle. I'm not, I'm not like giving you the end of the story like if I, I ruined six cents for my kids years ago. You know, I, I, I made the mistake of saying how awesome that he's already dead and doesn't know it. And they went, Dad, no! I just ruined it for all of you. If you've never seen Sixth Sense, it's still worth watching. You know what's going to happen here. And so we might overlook these set of descriptions as just, okay, this is a case for it. But, but really, from the Jewish mind of their day, these descriptives were a contradiction of terms. If we were to say to people in the time of Zechariah and Elizabeth that they were without a child, the notion that they were at the same time righteous in the sight of God would have been contradictory. Because barrenness was seen as, having a child was seen as an affirmation of God's blessing. Remember, we're in a time when women did not have the opportunities and were not treated as equals. And so the way a woman declared and showed God's blessing in her life was her fruitfulness and childbearing and her keeping house and keeping the household. I am not affirming that as God's original plan. I want to be clear about that. But that was Elizabeth's life. And so the assumption that she did not have children meant that there was something wrong spiritually. Because if they were righteous in the sight of God, surely there would be a child, you see. You see that attitude, that way of thinking in another story in the Gospels when the disciples and Jesus pass a blind man. And they make this question that really reveals the, the assumption of the Jewish mind of that day, that God rewards righteousness with blessing, and lack of blessing means that there is sin somewhere. When they said to Jesus, Master, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Notice the assumption there. Somebody sinned. <laughs> it wasn't, Master, is this man's blindness a product of God's judgment? That was the assumed truth. The only question was, who's guilty? And so imagine being Elizabeth and Zechariah, God knowing their righteousness. It's in the sight of God that they're righteous, not in the rumors of the town. See the difference there? So imagine living under that 
lens and that constant sense of the rumors and yet knowing that you're living upright before God. And now, just to be clear, Luke says not only were they childless, but now they are well past any hope of having children. They are not just old. Tony Randall had a baby, what, when he was 76 or something? I heard, read of a woman who just had twins at 65. Not naturally, not naturally, you know. They are very old. They are well past the point where they can expect God to ever bless them with children. And so this is the context. This is the shadow under which Elizabeth in particular has lived. It's interesting to note that the assumption was that it was Elizabeth's fault that they didn't conceive. Elizabeth was unable to bear children. Science hadn't taught people that sometimes it's the guy and culture wouldn't allow them to think that. So Elizabeth was under this double shadow. Now we move on and we see the setting of the story that will unfold. Verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. This was a, a, a common scene every day around the temple, but a once-in-a-lifetime experience for Zechariah. You see, there were some 24 different divisions of priests. And twice a year, your division would leave your hometown and go to Jerusalem where the temple was, and for a week you would serve the Lord around the temple. That's how many priests there were at this time. There were many thousands. And during that time, they, they had a tradition of casting lots, not in a superstitious way, but in a way to decide, because there were so many, who had the privilege of going into the holy place and offering uh, one of two times a day where the incense offering, known as the perpetual offering for the forgiveness of sin, was offered. If the lot fell to you, it was a once-in-a-lifetime deal. Most priests served their whole life and never had the privilege of ever entering into the actual temple. All their service was in the temple outer rooms and in the courts. The temple itself had two rooms, the holy place. And this was the place that Zechariah was at this moment, imagine his whole life coming year in and year out, twice a year serving, never having the lot fall to him. And here in his old age, they cast the lot. And I'm hoping people were cheering for him. Zachariah, it's your turn. And that was it. Once he did this, he's off the list because he's done it. And so this is an amazing once in a lifetime. He, he won the lottery, literally. So I can imagine him getting on the special garments that were part of that ministry and then going in and he goes in to the temple and the crowd stands around waiting. This was as important to the Jewish person as the Eucharist to our Roman Catholic friends, many of whom will go every day in order to receive 
the Eucharist. This was a similar thing. It was about the forgiveness of sins. And it's important that you understand that as we look at the encounter that's about to take place. Zechariah goes in and he is offering at the altar of incense, which is right in front of the veil, behind which is that most sacred place, the Holy of Holies, where God is thought to dwell with his people. And there he's offering the incense as a sacrifice to rise to heaven as a plead for God's grace and forgiveness of sins. And it's the only shot he's got at it. All right? Now we'll read as the story goes on. Verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. We're going to take those phrases apart in a moment, piece by piece, because each of them matters. But just imagine what, how I picture this happen. Zechariah goes in. He's there standing at the altar offering the incense, and suddenly he realizes someone's standing to his right. Now, he didn't just look and go, oh, how you doing? <laughs> this was not a, a normal thing. He was startled. Angels did not show up in those days. In fact, this is really important. It had been most likely 400 years since God had moved supernaturally and miraculously through a prophet. There was no new scripture during those 400 silent years. And during those years, the nation of Israel was patiently waiting, grateful after centuries of struggling with idolatry and moral compromise and losing their, the promised land and then finally being restored. Now they are zealous about their worship of the one true God, but they are not free. They are under the might of a foreign power. And so now they are devoted to this very worship that Zechariah is a part of and practicing but they're praying for God to come and speak again. He had not worked. He had not moved. He had not shown up. This was a new deal. And so, of course, he's startled. And then the angel says some very important things to him. First of all, he says, do not be afraid. For some reason, angels have to say that every time they show up. <laughs> for some reason. First of all, it's not normal. And secondly, they're pretty, they're pretty impressive. Some of them are downright terrifying if you do a little research. All right, so he says, do not be afraid. Second thing, your prayer has been heard. Now, we assume because of what's said that what he's referring to exclusively is the barrenness of Elizabeth, Right? I want to suggest that we think a little more fully about the context. Remember what we had heard. Elizabeth and Zechariah are childless but are well past the years of giving birth. So I'd assume it's been a long time since they prayed that prayer. 
The season has passed. It's not going to happen. Is it possible that Gabriel was saying God's answering that prayer? Certainly. And I believe he was. But there was another prayer that Zechariah was praying in that very moment that Gabriel showed up. Because what he would be doing as a priest is quoting a prayer beseeching Jehovah for the sins of the people for his mercy and his grace. That's the prayer being uttered from his lips when Gabriel shows up and says, your prayer's been heard. And so what we're going to see unfold is that it's sort of a yes, yes. The prayer that they had long ago given up on, now miraculously when all hope is lost, God's going to answer. It's pretty amazing. But yet, this prayer is primarily about the plan that is about to unfold about the forgiveness of sins and the demonstration of God's grace through Messiah, through Jesus. Your prayer has been heard. Third thing he says, you and Elizabeth will have a son. Pretty amazing. And then the third thing, you will call him John. Now, names matter in the Bible. Elizabeth's name means God is my fortune. And up until this point, she might think that the name was a bit hollow because she'd had to go through life being seen as a recipient of misfortune and disgrace, in fact. But her name had a powerful meaning. But there were nobody... There was nobody named John in Zechariah's line. Nobody had ever been named John. That's one of the comments later on in the story. The part of the chapter we're probably not going to get to today, which I highly encourage you to read the rest of the chapter and see how it goes. Uh, one of the comments they make is, there's, there's no John in your family. Where did that come from? Names matter. The name John means God is gracious. This is what is going to unfold now after four centuries of silence. God's plan to be gracious not just to Elizabeth and Zechariah and not just to the Jewish people but to the whole world through Messiah was about to come and John was the one that was going to prepare the way. And we go on and we read this description of who John will be, verse 14. He will be a joy and delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, any priest worth his weight in incense would know that this was a messianic prophecy, that this is referring to the prophecy of the forerunner who would come 
crying, prepare ye the way of the Lord, that this John was part of God's plan that was unfolding. Really powerful. And of course, Zechariah, being a great man of faith, said, Amen, let's go. Unfortunately, that's not what happens. Verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I mean, I'm, I'm an old man. My wife is well along in years. Well, all this does is tell us that Zechariah is just like you and me. That's all. No more, no less. He's a man that's unaccustomed to God doing the miraculous and gives him more of an excuse not to do it than an expectation that he will. But I love Gabriel's response to him. He says, prove it. And all Gabriel says basically is this. I'm Gabriel. <laughs> that's what he says. The angel said to him, verse 19, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. That's it. He doesn't like argue. There's no, there's no defense of God's plan and how it's going to happen. He just says, you want proof. Here I, I'm Gabriel. And so that, that, then he says, so just so that you don't say anything more stupid like that. Ah, 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 ah. Close it, close it, close it. For nine months, you're going to keep it closed. So that you don't say, well, I don't know if that's why. So it doesn't say anything else stupid like that. But you're not going to speak for nine months now as God fulfills his promise. And did I mention, I'm Gabriel. <laughs> I'm having this moment of Tony Stark saying, I'm Iron Man. But that's, uh, that's nowhere near as good as this. And this really happened, actually, too. That's a... That's another thing. All right, so now we pick up verse 21. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. I mean, this was not normal. When he came out, he could not speak to them. That's important because what would normally happen is that the priest would come out and pronounce a benediction. The Lord bless and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. Some, some benediction. Uh, from especially the Old Testament scriptures. But he was unable to fulfill his work, and so they all made the conclusion that something important happened, something powerful happened in that place. Now, we're going to turn to Elizabeth. All that to help you understand and see Elizabeth's response to this great work of God. So this, these verses matter. Verse 23. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. And you know, you know what, what happened. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant the normal way. And for five months remained in seclusion. I love how it just says it. The language there is pretty matter of fact. Elizabeth got pregnant. How did that happen? The usual. She got pregnant. But it's her response that I want us to focus on. There's two different passages, two different sections of this that show Elizabeth's reaction to this work of God. And I believe it shows a progression of understanding and gratitude. The first time she responds, her reaction is really one of personal 
gratitude and joy. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, right? She says, the Lord, verse 25, look at it. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So her first response is gratitude. Turns out her name does mean something. God is my fortune. I'm not uh, no longer a victim of disgrace by those who presume God's judgment on me and that I'm somehow under the mark of sin. In fact, God has removed all of that disgrace from me. It's personal for her, and, and why not? And why not? Now, we go to verse 26 through 38, which we will skip, which we would normally make sure we read because it's where Gabriel, five months or six months later, shows up with Mary and tells her that she's going to get pregnant, not in the normal way, <laughs> but through the Holy Spirit, and the child that's going to be born will be the Savior of the world. And she will say, how can this be? And Gabriel goes, no, 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 close it. No, she doesn't do that to Mary. He doesn't do that to Mary. He says, even your cousin Elizabeth is pregnant in her old age and is now six months along. For with God, nothing is impossible. And Mary surrenders herself to God's will in spite of the scandal that it will bring to her as a result of this. In the same way, Elizabeth had experienced scandal because God chose to allow her to live her whole life having her hopes and dreams not fulfilled. Right? And so Mary surrenders, and, and we pick up the story at verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now what we're about to hear is more than just Elizabeth's personal understanding of what God has done and her expression of gratitude to it. Now Elizabeth becomes the prophetess. Because in those days, it was not the norm for the Holy Spirit to come upon and enter people and to fill people. We live on this side of what we refer to historically as the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came and birthed the church. And we know, according to the New Testament, that every person that has come to life in Jesus because you've surrendered to Him as your Savior and your Lord, you've given your life to Him, you are born anew by the Spirit, and it's the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life that has baptized you into the body of Christ. Every believer today has the joy of the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life. That was not the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit came on and empowered people supernaturally. And so what Elizabeth is about to say now is a deeper level of understanding of God's plan. And this is the progression in her growth now. She begins by being grateful for God's work in her life for what it brings to her. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. You and I ought to be grateful 
for God's work in our life when it comes. But what Elizabeth is learning in this next moment is what every one of us needs to learn about God's work in your life. And that is His miraculous work in your life is never just for you. It always has a greater purpose in His plan. And that's what she comes to understand by this moment. Verse 42, in a loud voice she exclaimed to Mary, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. As, um, but I am so, why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Now, because we rarely come to this passage, we would fail to just take a moment parenthetically to the series and once again, as we come to this, point out that this is one of the passages in the Bible that is why committed Christians to Scripture believe that the life in the womb is a living soul. Because John worships Jesus in the womb. And that's why if we're Christians and we honor Scripture, we see that life in the womb as precious and worthy of honoring just as though they were out of the womb. And so if, if you're caught with the arguments of the world that have forced you into thinking or convinced you to think that it's all about women's rights, it's not. This is not about rights. This is about a living person who also has rights, who is also created in God's image. Now, Christians ought to be as pro-woman as anybody. God is pro-woman, right? We, we, we want women to have opportunities and choices, and that includes the ones in the womb. See? All right, that was a little 40-second uh, little sermonette there. That was free. But now we're going to go on and look at what she says. She understands now that there is greater purpose to this. Blessed are you among all women. She thought she was the one that was blessed. God's removed my disgrace. I'm having a baby. Can you believe it? Now he, she looks at Mary and says, Oh, you're, you're really the one that God has blessed because of the child you bear. And then she refers to that child as, this is really important, my Lord. You see, through the filling of the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth is the very first human being in the New Testament to profess Jesus as her Lord. The Lord. Not just a baby, not just royalty, but God, Emmanuel, God with us. And she worshiped him. It's just so, so powerful to look at that. Well, you can read as you go on and, and see that the baby John is born. And uh, they ask for the name, and Zachariah is not able to say anything. And he says, he writes down John. And they go, There's, well, why John? And, and Elizabeth is the one that says, yes, it's going to be John. And they turn to Zechariah, and he affirms that. And as soon as he does, his voice opens, and he says one of the most beautiful declarations, again, filled with the Holy Spirit, a prophetic song 
about God's grace and God's mercy. But this is about Elizabeth. So we're going to leave it right here, and we're going to look at several takeaways from the life of Elizabeth. Let's look at the first one. I love this. There's no age limit to God using us. There's this interesting juxtaposition in this story of Elizabeth who is unable to bear a child because of old age who miraculously gets pregnant and then Mary who is a teenager who is not married and a virgin who gets pregnant probably 14 years old and yet both of them experience God's miraculous work and are part of his eternal plan there is no age limit to God using us praise God for that I'm so grateful to be where I am in my life. I get senior citizen discounts. And God's using me right now for something. I'm I'm so grateful to be a part of what God's doing in the journey. It's a (laughs) win-win. $5 breakfast at IHOP. If I can remember to ask, haven't gotten in that habit yet. You know? I always remind people my age who are coming to the end of their career that Moses' best third of his life was his last third. You read the story. And that's true. That's true for all of us. There's, there's no age limit on God using us. When I was coming up in the 60s and 70s, there was this phrase that came out of uh, uh, UC Berkeley, uh, the, the, the young adult uh, movement there, the protest movement. Um, and it's an interesting story. You can d- read some story about it, but it became this sort of mantra for my generation, and that is we don't trust anybody over 30. The guy who said that turned 68 um, recently. And, uh, you know, that's silly, you know. Uh, young adults, what, what old people have is the wisdom that comes from having all the, made all the mistakes that you're, you have in front of you yet. And you need to bless the wisdom of those. And, you know, it's so easy for us to look at the group think of the generation that came before us and think that we've got it all together, right? We've got all the social issues right now. We've got the right political thing. We know how the government's going to function. It's going to fix all this. You know, and, and so what we do is we demonize previous generations. And trust me, when you are 60, you're going to be victim of that exact same thing from the generation is coming up from you. And, and I think that's part of Satan's device of keeping us from just blessing the fact that there's no age limit to God's working in us and through us with each other. So let's bless. One of the great joys of being at the journey is that it's intergenerational. I love that. And so let's, let's honor and bless that. Second, God always moves in his time, not ours, and it's always the right time. Now, here's the thing I want to say to you. There is nothing that says that out of this story, if there's a prayer or some expectation you had in your life that has long gone by that you've given up on, that somehow God's yet going to answer that specific prayer. I cannot say that to you because all of us know that we go through life. Elizabeth and Zachariah were blessed with John, but how many other couples had gone through their whole life under that same stigma in that culture and never had their disgrace removed? Were they any less loved by God? Were they any less righteous 
in their falling before God? Should we judge them? And even though we think we've outgrown this, isn't it true that we tend to judge people who are childless or haven't experienced certain blessings in their life that we've experienced as somehow less spiritually? God forgive us for our Phariseeism and our legalism. And may we be more generous to one another. But may we also not give up on God because He didn't think our plans were good enough. Because a lot of us in this room, maybe not a lot, I hope not a lot, but some of you in this room are fighting a bitterness towards God because the plans that you laid out for your life have not unfolded. And you've played by the rules. You've been righteous and upright. And you've assumed that that meant God was going to rubber stamp your plans. And somehow that would be what's best. And so in some sense, you're applying to your expectations of God the same judgmentalism that we apply towards others who don't experience God's blessing. And it's never about that. If God hasn't given you what you thought your life was destined for, what it means from an eternal perspective is that those plans were not good enough for you. And it doesn't mean that you should dream some bigger plans that you then present to God as your plan. What it means is that when God works and moves in your life, and indeed He will at some point, it will be perfect timing, and it will be exactly what He planned for you. And you will be filled with joy as you think about what He's done in your life. But you will come to recognize that it's not just about me. It was never about me. It was always about God. And that's why when God works, his timing is always perfect. In fact, Paul says that in Galatians 4 about these very events when he says, at just the right time, God sent his son born of a virgin. And we'll add to that, which was preceded by John, born of an old woman, Elizabeth. In God's plan, that was perfect timing. Third, often God does. I was, always going, I was almost going to put God always does, but I couldn't really prove that. But I think it's true that often God does his greatest work out of our greatest disappointments. It doesn't mean that he meets exactly and replaces exactly what life has taken away or what we never had the privilege of experiencing or the hurts or the betrayal. It's not, it's not like we ever get full closure on those things. But out of those things, God does some of his best work. He doesn't waste any of it. He will use it all for good, even if it stinks. And then finally, God ultimately has taken all of our disgrace through Jesus. So Elizabeth is just an example through God removing her disgrace of a greater disgrace that we all bear because of sin. And we are all under that disgrace and under judgment. And God worked and John, the one who preached about God's graciousness and forgiveness and preparing the way, made the way for Jesus to come so that the cross could be enough.
so that he could be stronger than our sin and the curse and the disgrace. And that's the real win for all of us.